The following is brought to you by Dustin Campbell, Daily Tech News Show, Michael Bolick, The Joe Q Car Show, Frank Latuka, Andy Beach, Nick Wood, Jim Wright, Will Harris, and Craig. Politics, 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 politics. Hello and welcome everybody to the Politics, Politics, Politics Podcast for January 15th. 2021 it's your old pal justin robert young joining you from oakland california got a hell of a show for you today as we come to grips with the fact that donald trump has been impeached not once but twice we now go through our winners and losers We will also crack open the mailbag. Lots of emails about the Capitol siege, obviously. Comparisons to Black Lives Matter. How fair or unfair those are. Whether or not the entire event is being mischaracterized. Whether or not I have revised my thought on the truly putrid documentary Social Dilemma in light of of what happened and the legacy of Sheldon Adelson. Finally, we will go into a a very uh, uh, <laughs> like the like, like 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 the mosquito in amber at the very beginning of Jurassic Park. There is a great conversation that I had with Bill Share of Politico Magazine, Real Clear Politics, Washington Monthly, and so many others about the way too early look at 2024 and who is going to be in that hunt. This happened before what happened in the Capitol, but I do think it's worthwhile, even if it's already outdated, because guess what? A way too early preview is going to be increasingly outdated by the time that we get to when it's actually relevant. So I'm going to run it as it was originally recorded, but I had a great time talking with Bill, and I hope you enjoy it as well. But first! There is a lot we don't know about how this impeachment trial is going to go in the Senate. But we know enough to be able to name some winners and losers. So let's go ahead and start here. Winner, Liz Cheney. Liz Cheney, you know the name. It's a new twist on an old favorite, the daughter of Dick. Liz Cheney sets herself apart from the pack as being the highest ranking Republican representative in the House to vote to impeach a Republican president. Obviously, there is no love lost between her and Donald Trump. So in terms of personal animus, uh, that, that is obviously stated. 
However, if we are to understand that there is a civil war going on within the Republican Party, and we are now going to take pro-Trump and never-Trump camps and formalize themselves into more concrete lanes of the same party. On the PX3 Extra yesterday, we called them ye old Republicans and yeehaw Republicans. Liz Cheney has now staked out her claim on the ye old Republican side. Principled conservative leadership. We hold people accountable over party, over influence, over greed. Well, maybe not over greed, but still, you, you, you get my point. We are here to bring back conservatism the way you remember it. Because if there's one thing that conservatism loves, it's the way you remember it. I would say right now the leaders there are Liz Cheney, Ben Sass, Mitt Romney, and possibly even somebody who is a winner a little bit later in this segment. Loser! Trump! Look, the dude got impeached again. He is going to go down in history as 2% of the presidents, but 50% of the impeachments. Nobody has ever had that happen to them before. He had to come out and do another video saying that, hey, everybody, do not do a violence. Don't do a violence in my name because he, he doesn't know how far this snake can uncoil. Based on his actions over the last five days, I don't know how repentant he is, but he is certainly afraid of the consequences of what he's done over the past three months. Otherwise, he wouldn't have, you know, effectively uh, turned tail in the last two communications that he's made formally from the office of the president, saying that there's never any excuse for violence. And this is in. Uh, uh, stark relief to what he said right after the Capitol riots where everybody was very special, but please go home. You have a right to be angry. We had this stolen from us. You know, that was part of what led to this impeachment. And so now he's on the run with his tail between his legs, a, a, a position that Donald Trump is not familiar with. I forget where I saw it, but finally... Donald Trump saw a spotlight he didn't want to pirouette into the center of. And that makes him a loser. In fact, compare it to the last time he was in this situation. Almost a year ago. Indeed, it was February 6th of 2020. After the Senate had acquitted him. That he gathered in the White House with all of the Republican leadership, much backslapping and handshaking because we were weeks before COVID, about what a great job they did. They'd circled the wagons, only Mitt Romney uh, cracked, and, and now they were ready to charge in to the 2020 election. Oh my God, everything's coming up GOP. It was there that Trump 
said the following. And Mitch McConnell, I want to tell you, you did a fantastic job. And they said, is Mitch smart? I said, well, let's put it this way. For many, many years, a lot of very smart, bad in many cases, sometimes good, but people have been trying to take his place. And to the best of my knowledge, I've never even heard the subject come up because they've been wiped out so fast. Well, tough guy to read, I'd call him. My wife would say, how'd you do with Mitch? Uh, I don't know. What a great, big, happy family, huh? That brings us to our next winner. If I am ever in a restaurant and I am sitting next to Mitch McConnell and I see that before his dinner is done, he has gotten up, left cash on the table, and exited the restaurant, I will, in all due haste, throw my food on the floor and ninja roll through a window because I will be afraid of what is going to happen to that restaurant in short order. Make no mistake, Mitch McConnell is the shrewdest player of the game in Washington, D.C. Not only did he give Trump the easy nudge when he acknowledged Joe Biden as the winner, he then tried to stop the senators from hurting themselves when he told them all, do not challenge these election results. And then got up while they were challenging the election results and said, I am not a part of this. I think this is disgusting. I think this is bad. He gets that last chopper off the roof in Saigon before the embassy falls. Mitch McConnell, who is now flirting with the idea of voting to convict Trump, has put himself in a power position, despite the fact that he's not the majority leader. Despite the fact that he is going to be no longer the majority leader, as soon as John Ossoff and Raphael Warnock are, si- are, are sworn in, he still is the most powerful man in the Senate. This guy, Cocaine Mitch. Just, just insane. Insane. Because now he's in a situation where he controls where these Republican votes go, he can decide to, uh, uh, you know, help make this process go as fast or as slow as it's it's going to go. But he's not going to bring everybody back to do it before Joe Biden comes in, and so now he controls half the tempo for how fast or slow it goes once Biden does get in. And the entire time, he could be just running out the clock during the two years that we know the Repu- sorry the Democrats are going to have a very slim operating majority, the slimmest possible operating majority in the Senate. 
So he already has a counterbalance to any negotiation that's going to happen. And Biden and Schumer now need to decide exactly how they're going to handle this impeachment proceeding, understanding that it's not going to happen before Biden is inaugurated. So let's get to our next loser, Joe Biden. Joe Biden is going to come into the presidency with a decision. How much of his first 100 days in the Senate does he want to eat up with the litigation of Donald Trump? Because in a perfect world, he would love to focus on the future. That's the whole point of him, to turn the page, get Trump out of everybody's minds. That's why he got more votes than anybody ever has in the history of the union. He's got an economic stimulus bill he wants to pass. He's got a domestic terrorism bill he wants to pass. He's got a, you know, public option. Look, as much as the first 100 days are probably overrated, I do think realistically there is an importance on them because the further you go into your term, the more things happen. The more that you're going to have the focus shifted, the more that there's going to be cooks in the kitchen that are going to ask to include their own ingredients. The only time you get a clean sheet is when you first get in. So if that clean sheet is going to involve the the likely unsuccessful conviction of a president who has already left office, I can't see how that's a win for him. Let's head west, though, beyond Washington, D.C. Here are a couple big winners. Twitter and Facebook. After they got ripped when Donald Trump won the White House. Being the platforms of fake news, the platforms of Russian interference the weeping internal meetings at Silicon Valley as everybody had to weigh the the weight on their souls of, of how much they elevated Donald Trump into the White House. They, for some reason, have almost totally avoided a public prosecution and shaming for what happened at the Capitol. No, it's parlor that is in the barrel. They're the ones that are getting all of the shaming. Despite the fact that Parler has a reported user base of 12 million, Lord knows how many of those are actually active. Twitter reports 36 million active monetizable users. That's their new metric. And Facebook has 2.7 billion active users. There's no doubt that by tonnage, more of the organization and inflammation of the actual fraction of the 8,000 people that stormed into the Capitol was done on Twitter and Facebook than Parler. And yet, they have triple axles skated 
passed much public criticism on this. For that, they get a big winner tag. And finally, our last loser, Nancy Pelosi. Has there ever been an impeachment with less fanfare? Pelosi's in this weird position. She gets little credit for pushing it because her base sees it as a moral imperative, something that she had to do. So she gets little credit for doing the thing that people thought had to be done. And meanwhile, she's seemingly got no credit for it being bipartisan because she hasn't really wanted to highlight that. And again, people are not exactly excited to put any kind of of positive spin on this because it's such a grave act. In a lot of ways, I, I don't know if impeachment as a tool will ever really be looked at the same way again. I mean, it felt a little cheapened with Clinton. It felt even more cheap with the first Trump one. And this one just kind of felt like somebody threw a a, a NFL yellow penalty marker. It had all of the gravitas of Donald Trump getting slimed because he said the wrong word on you can't do that on television. For that, Nancy Pelosi is, in all of this, a loser. They ask me, did I go deep in my bag? And I tell them, I showed it. You can always email the show at theyoungamerican at gmail.com. Again, theyoungamerican at gmail.com. We begin our mailbag this week with Steven. I don't think Trump supporters killed a police officer. Just like I don't think BLM supporters burned down buildings. I don't think Trump wants to see dead police officers. I don't think that BLM wants their neighborhoods and businesses burnt to the ground. I think there are troublemakers on both sides who are on the side of causing trouble. It could be that they are both the same people doing these things. You know, back in the day, countries used to stoke fears and instigate people in enemy countries, as well as part of a well-rounded espionage and dissent program. Well, Stephen, I, I don't quite agree with the idea that this is there's anything particularly organized to this, but I do think that there is a... Without getting both sidesy, whatever that even means these days, I mean, it seems like we are... All I see is divisions. From my vantage point, because I got to deal with all of you. All I see is everybody wanting to strata themselves into different places. Hillary supporters, Bernie supporters, Tulsi supporters, Yang supporters. Uh, I'm not a, a, a socialist. I'm a sock dem. Don't confuse me with a tanky. Well, no, you're a, le- a neoliberal. No, I'm a classical liberal. No, no, no. I'm a rock-ribbed Republican. Uh, don't give me that, rhino. I'm MAGA. Oh, yeah, cheese ball? Well, I'm never Trump. So when people say both sides, I- I'm going to need you from here on out to specify which both sides. 
I'm gonna be like a a a, a barbecue place. <laughs> like like look, you can get collard greens and macaroni and cheese, but you can't just say both sides because we also got potatoes and coleslaw. So you're gonna have to pick the both sides that you think that I am talking about. That being said, we are specifically talking about the riots that happened over the summer and the riots that happened in the Capitol. I think the larger point that we have to deal with beyond identifying the little troublemakers, the, the, the Dennis the menaces among us, is saying what state are we in as a culture that that level of violence is something that we believe will be productive? That's the larger question I would like to ask. Why do we think that a smashed out Starbucks is going to get your police department to act better? Why do we believe that terrorizing Nancy Pelosi is going to make her change the, the direction of the Democrats? Either seem to be particularly prudent courses of action, and that's before we get into the moral element of it. But to me, there is a rot in critical thinking and in our moral compass that has led this to be a thing that people believe to be effective. Because I don't particularly think it is. Derek writes, During Trump's previous impeachment, I learned that every impeachment had been partisan. I'm reading a lot about Republicans saying that they'll vote to impeach. Do you think that this might be different? Well, we had, I believe, 22 Republicans vote to impeach him on Wednesday in the House. We're not going to get to see uh, senators vote on that, but seven have said that they will. So this will be more bipartisan. But I think the, the point of impeachment and removal is that it has to be bipartisan. Which, again, it's like, you know, maybe this is just my my tactician brain that's working. But it's like, if you really wanted to get Trump out, wouldn't you try to tie this to something else that the Republicans really want to do? Wouldn't you want a spoonful of sugar to make the medicine go down? Wouldn't you offer that, oh, hey, by the way, we'll do a liability reform in the next COVID thing. If you go along with us, Mitch McConnell, and call a emergency session of the Senate, just do some naked ass horse trading. <laughs> horse traders party naked. Ron writes, for a few moments there, I thought that Pelosi and the Democrats were serious about impeachment. Pelosi had the drama about the nuclear codes and everything. Sorry, nuclear, nuclear, not nuclear, nuclear codes. I know you guys were bothered by that. The obvious thing to do was to immediately bring a vote uh, on impeachment the day after the riot, when the maximum number of Republicans would sign on. But no, they didn't do that. Then came the weekend. And the weekend is Miller time. Screw any chance of nu nuclear annihilation. We got our priorities. It was also, I'm adding editorial, a uh, super wild card weekend in the NFL. 
And then comes Monday, the letter continues. Let's spend a useless day voting on the 25th Amendment, which is both unconstitutional and, in this case, Pence has already ruled out. But that's okay. Another 24 to 48 hours with the president having the nuclear football is just fine. Eventually, I realized, oh, Pelosi doesn't want this to succeed. I'm embarrassed that it took so long to cotton on. Ron, don't feel bad. Millions of Americans, including many good friends of mine, feel the same thing. As a collective, I call them Twitter. Bo writes, with the death of Sheldon Adelson, how does this affect the GOP moving forward? Are his kids, Shelley and Mitchell, as dedicated to the cause of GOP fundraising and donation as their father was? Additionally, might this be one of the final nails in the coffin for Trump 2024, given how much Sheldon pro uh, proposed or sorry, propped up the Trump campaign financially. Sheldon Adelson is a fascinating figure. He is somebody that deserves a, a big write-up. I, I, I should hit up Dave. Le Leventhal should do a big write-up on this. I think he is a voice that should explain exactly what the life and influence of a mega donor was. But remember, uh, Sheldon Adelson opposed Trump right up until Ted Cruz quit. Cruz was Adelson's guy. Now, Adelson eventually got on the Trump train, and I think he was particularly tickled by the fact that Trump did, he was very pro-Israel. Like, Trump did the Israel stuff that every president says they're going to do and then never does. Uh, Trump did, and I think Adelson is a huge Israel uh, supporter, was an Israel supporter. So I think he was tickled by that, but Trump's 2024 run is hurt by the fact of what happened last week. Uh, if, if last week didn't happen, he would have been able to catch that money. Who knows what happens going forward? Half normal rights. First and foremost, I do not condone any form of violence or illegal activity. So please explain why the rally at the Capitol before it became violent was unlawful and not just. The people were expressing what the American founding fathers were expressing. Uh, I do have to apologize to Half Normal because he was going to have me read like half the Constitution between that. But I, I actually, I mean, this is where sometimes I, I, I genuinely don't know because so many things are being said so confidently on the internet that I genuinely need to ask. Is anybody suggesting that that protest was wrong before it stormed the Capitol? Because I don't think anybody's saying that. I think everything that was said at the rally becomes actionable once the result happens. So Rudy Giuliani saying trial by combat, which I guess he admitted this week that that, that is a Game of Thrones thing. So now we need to find out what Rudy thought of season eight. And Trump saying, we got to march. And if you don't fight for their country, fight for your country, you're going to lose it. That only becomes a thing once the violence happens. So everything flowers from the violence. Jacob writes, if riots are the voice of the unheard, is it smart to silence the voices of potential wingnuts by cutting off all of their outlets? 
I'm sure big tech coordinating together to shut down their leaders and their platforms will go over great with a crowd that sees the media as the enemy of the people. Seems like this is the kind of thing that would make the kind of dope that would storm the Capitol even more angry and desperate. I have very philosophical thoughts about what happened with Parler and the banning of Trump and stuff. Mostly because I think if, number one, there, there's a little bit of a rules for thee and not for me thing. Because if you actually go by tonnage in terms of, uh, of circulation and organization of what happened at the Capitol, more of it happened on Twitter and Facebook than happened on Parler. Because Parler's a far smaller platform. It is only because of Parler's identification that we look at that and say, oh, well, that's where all the organization happened. Well, most of the organization probably happened through group chats and message boards and stuff like that. But if we're looking at only social interaction, which effectively are the flyers that are posted outside the grocery store, the more popular grocery stores, metaphorically speaking, are Twitter and Facebook. I'm not a gigantic fan of it. Nor do I think that it's something that we should look at as anything other than a a web assassination. Like AWS and Apple can't go to Parler and say, hey, fix stuff within 24 hours or we're going to cut your thing within 24 hours and not know it's a death sentence. Like these are tech people. You know you can't migrate all that to a different server in 24 hours. If gave him a month or something, it would still be a hustle, but I don't know. Logan writes, for a long time, I always thought it took way too long to inaugurate an incoming president. I thought that when people have spoken in a democracy, it makes sense to acquiesce to that mandate ASAP. The situation with Trump has surprisingly changed my mind. I think he is a fringe case in what is otherwise the most important time to heal the country. Having the country see the, co uh, the coordination and cooperation of opposing factions does a lot to call, uh, call everyone down the post-election and realize that in the end, everything will ultimately be okay. I actually think post-Trump, this sentiment will be driven more by outgoing, outgoing presidents in order to repudiate the toxicity of what we've seen from the Trump campaign. Maybe, I hope so, Doing Raise the Dead has given me two beliefs, ideas from the past that I would like to see replicated today. Number one, I would like to see, in good faith, at least one or two events done, campaign events, not debates, campaign events, where one person goes up and speaks and the other person goes up and speaks. Maybe they don't even interact. Uh, I would love to see that on the campaign trail during the general election. Just in good faith. And maybe make it a thing. Have both of their staffs ride on the same plane. Like, just something that puts both crowds together. Maybe each campaign picks which location it happens in. This is an idea that came from Barry Goldwater and John F. Kennedy. 
They wanted to do their entire campaign that way, according to history. Now, Barry Goldwater did get that Republican nomination. JFK did not live to see that election. But I think it's a good idea. And I think it's one that we should dust off now. The second idea comes from 1960. And that happened by accident. Richard Nixon happened to be in Miami when JFK was in South Florida. I think he was at the Breakers in in Palm Beach. And Nixon went up and they had lunch. And this was when a lot of people thought that JFK had robbed the Republicans of the election. I like the idea of just a lunch. Just a lunch. Just let people see that you guys can talk to each other. Because if they can talk, then I think it does set a good example that other people should be encouraged to. Chris writes, on your last show, you mentioned uh, wanting college students to write you. So here you go. I was wondering what you think of the biggest weapons will be for uh, this election that Republicans might want to utilize. In other words, do you think there is anything in particular from this election that Republicans will utilize in the next election to garner support? I've heard some Republican friends of mine say that Biden choosing Harris as her v- as the VB will be looked down upon in future because she was chosen specifically for being a woman. I've also heard someone say that when Biden dies, Harris becoming president would look bad because she would be the first unelected woman president. They also seem to think that Democrats sneaking in a woman president would be bad, especially if Republicans ran a woman for president. Chris, I actually don't think that you're totally off base by saying the exploiting the weird relationship that we have right now with Biden will be a an advantage to them. God knows where the party's going to be in four years. But Biden is old and has hinted right up until he was elected that he wasn't going to run again. I'm on the record as saying, I think he's going to run again. So either he runs again and he's really old or he stands down and Harris runs. At which point, I think Harris is a far easier target to paint with a radical brush than Biden was. And regardless of her gender, although that will certainly play into it, she's a target that I think the the now lost and hopefully for the Republicans reclaimed suburban vote would be more uh, uh, akin to go against. The idea that she would uh, be an actual drift leftward. And then God knows where the mood of the, uh, the country is in terms of how left they feel like it's drifted. To hear Republicans talk about it leading up to this election uh, will be halfway to Venezuela by the time that that election comes around. As always, college kids. I love talking to college kids. I want I want I want to get this going with college kids. I will answer a college kid answer a college kid email every mailbag that I do from here on out if you guys keep writing in. Autumn writes. I've recommended the Netflix documentary The Social Dilemma to a few people that aren't in contact with technology the same way I am due to my generation and my career. 
To me, the salient points were that platforms can put anything they want in front of your eyes, lure you back in for opaque reasons derived from your social graph, which they control, not you, and reference other groups you should join. Facebook's uh, a corporate need to keep you engaged on their platform, and that leads to them recommending literally anything they can. They res that results in discoveries such as this from Facebook's own internal research. Facebook revealed that 64% of the time a person joins an extremist group, they do so because the platform itself recommends it. Have you thought about this social dilemma, lowercase, uh, uh, and, and has it changed since the evolution of viral politics like what we le led to the insertion at the Capitol? We can't police everything, but I would love to hear thoughts of yours. I respect your opinions, but I knew in my bones this was a big problem prior to January 6th. You are mostly not concerned, i.e. All power, all power is future power. Trump ran out of runway. He'll concede effectively on January 5th, etc., etc. His allies abandoning him is the right answer, but foreign money and underhanded political movements will not be a thing of the past. Your shock of silver hair is regal. Keep it up. Well, I said he was going to, uh, uh, I said he was going to concede effectively on January 5th. He did so on January 7th. So I don't feel like that one was totally wrong. Now, a funny thing happened on the way to the forum. On the way there, I'll concede. Again, I, I don't think, I think when we're, when we're, we're, we're looking at the roots of this. If we say that every time a man beats his child, he takes a drag off a Marlboro cigarette, we can certainly say that the Marlboro cigarette is linked to him beating his child. But I don't think it answers the question. So, like, do people find on Facebook uh, uh, extremist groups that are recommended to them? Yes. Are they, but what are, what is in their hearts? What are they sniffing around before they get there? To me, again, this is a larger issue. This is not about recommendations on YouTube or Facebook. Yes, these are mechanisms. And yes, they might even tell us something. Much in the same way that the man smoking the Marlboro cigarette after he beat his child uh, it might reveal that his dad used to smoke a Marlboro cigarette every time he beat the man who was now beating his child. It might tell us something, but it doesn't tell us the root cause. I also continue to think that that movie was garbage. And finally, Andrew writes, I was listening to the recent episode with yourself, Heaton, and Jen Briney. I love all three of you, especially together. So do I. I add editorially, but I have to take some umbrage with Jen's remarks about the tactics used by law enforcement during the siege on the Capitol. When those people broke into the building, they ceased being protesters and became attackers, trying to stop the U.S. government from performing its job. Whether you want to call this insurrection or not, and I do think that it fits that definition regardless of the lack of organization, at that point, law enforcement's job is to defend the Capitol and stop them not to take selfies with them. Many people have rightly pointed out the blatantly obvious difference in how heavy-handed the response was to BLM protests last summer, which did not involve armed people literally storming the Capitol and this riot. 
I have no doubt that if a bunch of BLM protesters had broken into the Capitol while Congress was in session, they would have been shot like insurgents. Now, I don't want to put words in Jen's mouth, and I would encourage you to contact her directly. But what I believe, what I took in that conversation to mean her saying this is how we should treat protesters was A, the fact that there was not mass shootings, and B, that there was a police officer helping an old lady down the stairs. Five people died during that process. One got shot actively trying to breach the Capitol. One was a police officer who was killed in the process. One was a police officer who was injured in the process. And two had medical emergencies that were unable to get the appropriate medical attention because of the crowd. The fact that five people died when that kind of event happened is on the very low end of what could happen. I think that's what some people are getting at when they say, oh, well, if this were black protesters, they would have been shot. Now, it's hard to prove a thing that didn't happen, but that doesn't seem unreasonable to me. So let's presume it's true. And what I believe Jen was saying, or I took Jen to say, was why don't we treat them like that? Let's, when, when, when we're drawing this line in the sand, let's also be clear on which side we want things to go. And let's be mad when they don't. The Young American at gmail.com is where you write in. Folks, it's been a crazy, I can't believe it's already a week from the end of last week, man. And and we already, we have an impeachment. We have the, the, the flittering allegiances of cocaine Mitch. We have calm Trump. What the hell is going on? You still got another couple days until inauguration where no one's going to be there, but Tom Hanks is going to host something. This stuff, even when it's going slow, it's going fast. But you guys get every inch of it covered because you support me at TakePoliticsSeriously.com. At the $3 level, you get two bonus podcasts a week, one on Monday, one on Thursday. So wherever the Plinko news value tile lands, sometimes it's on a Monday, sometimes it's on a Thursday, you get the first analysis on those episodes and the way things go these days there's no guarantee that that's not going that that's still going to be even news by the time that the next regular episode comes up so head on over there right now takepoliticsseriously.com join at the three dollar level and by the way if you have not gotten your custom rss feed or you're at the three dollar level but you haven't downloaded it it's so simple just go to takepoliticsseriously.com once you've already signed up and it should be right there on that page. 
I know this has to be complicated for some people because somebody who is, I'm not gonna name names, but somebody who is very, very technically skilled had to ask me, I had to walk through getting them their RSS feed uh, uh, like I would my parents. So there we go, that's how you do it. TakePoliticsSeriously.com Our guest today is Bill Scher. He is a contributing editor at The Politico Magazine, a contributor to Real Clear Politics, and a co-host of The DMZ, a bipartisan online show and podcast on bloggingheads.tv. He is also the writer and producer of the When America Worked history podcast. And let me tell you, I've listened to the first episode of this. If you liked Raise the Dead... You're going to like this, too. Heads up. This interview happened before everything that happened in the Capitol. This conversation is about who is likely to run in 2024. So keep that in mind. Obviously, things have changed. But you want to know what? I figured for a way too early 2024 discussion... It's not like things aren't going to consistently change a million times more. So this is frozen in carbonite, the conversation that me and Bill had about that subject. Laugh at it now, or maybe there is wisdom in there that will age beyond our current chaos. Let's go ahead into the past and welcome him. Welcome to the show, Bill. Great to be with you. Now, I, I, I feel like, and even just in the conversation that we had before we started recording, that, that I have found a kindred soul on so many things, including the fact that you also do a history podcast that is delving into uh, uh, very key and crucial elements of our American experiment uh, that, that probably bear more hallmarks to today than we would otherwise uh, uh, talk about. And hopefully we'll get to that at the end, but also because you share my undying passion that there is never too early to talk about the next presidential election. And, that is correct. And that is the article that you have written for Politico magazine, which 2024 candidate has won 2020. Uh, so let's start here because it seems to be the most relevant. We'll actually put Donald Trump second much in the way that he ended 2020 uh, mm -hmm. uh, and, and say, Joe Biden, there seems to be this, very bizarre dueling narrative that that a lot of people think obviously he's not going to run many people like myself think you don't become president to not run for president that simply <laughs> doesn't happen uh, uh from your vantage point in in looking through all of the possible people that would uh, be vying for the spot in 2024 how do you see it well, you know, and I'll start with something that I did not put in the Politico piece. You know, I assume Biden was a one-termer most of the way through this election. Yeah. Uh, he is seven, he's 78 now. He would be 82 in 2024. That's really kind of pushing your luck. Yep. Uh, and quite frankly, second terms are usually terrible. 
they suck uh, yeah uh so why not you know have a bang bang on one term i i got rid of trump i got us back on track see ya good luck kamala bite it out you know yeah. why, why enjoy your last few years why 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 torture yourself uh but and maybe it is his mentality you may i, I can't know what he's going to do but I do think that the way he won, yeah, and it's somewhat and it's somewhat counterintuitive. I mean, if he won by twenty points, I think a lot of people would say people were just done with Trump. Yeah, anybody could have won. Thank you, Joe Biden, for for you know stepping up. But we don't need you to keep Trump out of our business. Yeah, four years from now. Uh, but the way he won was. It was decisive, but not a landslide. Yes. Uh, and and a little bit better than the House. Uh, the popular was pretty similar. Biden was a, was a little bit better. Yep. Uh, and Biden did win several states by a hair. Uh, Rust Belt, Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. Wisconsin, Michigan, as well as newly purple Sun Belt, Arizona, Georgia. I think it all comes together with some folks saying, you know, maybe we needed Biden. <laughs> Maybe Biden is a unique figure in this party that manages to both keep the base together and have swing voter appeal. And guess what? Swing voters do exist. There are suburbanites that are kind of right leaning and we need people who are capable of bringing those folks over. Uh, And I don't know if Kamala Harris is that person. Maybe she can be, but I can't assume she is today. So I'm not sure, and Trump might well come back. You know, Trump didn't do so badly that it's not inconceivable he could come back and have a shot at winning again. So I think it all comes together with a lot of folks saying, hey, Joe Biden, keep it together, stay healthy, stay fit, keep your mask on, do your do your squat thrusts, and keep us together for four years after this. So at, at minimum, I don't think you have the chatter of, Let's let's get rid of Joe Biden as soon as possible right now. Yeah. People want to make sure Biden stays where he is for as long as he can. I guess my my thought is the reason why second terms suck is because there can't be a third term. If you could have a third term, your second term would be a lot like your first term. So if you have no second term, the day that Joe Biden hints at or it becomes known in Washington circles that he's not going to run again. Kamala Harris becomes the most powerful person in Washington and he becomes a a barnacle increasingly much in the same way that we're watching Trump's presidential power and influence sort of dissolve in front of our very eyes with like the New York post telling him to, you know, suck it up and eat an L and and just move on with life. So uh, uh, that's, that's my thought. So let's, let's then move to Kamala. Let's assume (laughs) that, that, that happens. My guess would be if she is the person that we do get, probably at least a year and change where we're kind of treating her like a semi-incumbent president, right? Yes. And and this is also true for Mike Pence, mind you. Yeah. Uh, vice presidents have an excellent track record in presidential primaries. Now, you could push back and say, well, there haven't been that many presidential primaries. We've only been in the modern primary system since 1972. Uh, but that period it includes Walter Mondale, who was coming off of a one-term of, uh, defeated president, as well as more successful ones like George Herbert Walker Bush, uh, Al Gore. I mean, not being president, but winning their primaries. Yeah. Herbert Walker Bush, Al Gore, uh, and and now Joe Biden. Uh, and if I go if I go pre 
72. Richard Nixon got it, the nomination twice. Yep. And Hubert Humphrey got it in 68. Didn't get it in 72, but he, he was a defeated presidential nominee at that point. So I think you put an asterisk on that. He, voice, he, he was able to get it at least once. Yes. Being VP. And the only person who was a VP who ran for president and did not get it was Dan Quayle. And Dan Quayle has two strikes against him. One, he was a uniquely unpopular vice president. Yeah. Mocked. So the benefit you get of being seen as the most qualified person did not apply to Dan Quayle because they thought he was a low IQ guy. And he had the added complication of running against the son of the person he served under. Yeah. So the, the natural loyalty base you get from being VP was not available to him either. Uh, so... People might say, hey, Kamala Harris, she was a weak candidate in the primary. I don't know if she has that Rust Belt uh, white suburbanite appeal. Uh, so I'm not going to say she's a slam dunk. You know, maybe she's not a slam dunk. And for Mike Pence, you might say, sure, he was Trump's VP, but he's not Trump. He's, he's so bland. He's milquetoast. He can't rile up the base that Trump can. I mean, these are all legitimate critiques. And I'm not saying it's a guarantee they become the presidential nominee, but there is something about having 48 years in the spotlight, traveling the country, getting media, meeting voters, building up donors, and having that veneer of readiness that is very hard to overcome in the last you know, uh, 30, 40 years we've had a presidential primaries. So, uh, so if Biden's not running and Trump's not running, they are your likely front runners. Yeah, no, totally. And also, I would say probably more so on the Democratic side than on the Republican side. I could see in that scenario a very Hillary in 2016 circling of the wagons of Democratic presidential power coalescing around one person and then and then maybe whatever the outsider candidate kind of challenging them. But I wouldn't see that these super wide 24 candidate field like we saw in in 2020 and 2024 if Kamala's the the, the runner. No, you would have a you definitely have a narrower field. I don't think yeah. it'd be wide open. Yeah. Uh but I would expect somebody on the left flank would want to challenge Kamala. And I think the most likely person of that would be AOC. Uh and you might get people who are concerned that Kamala doesn't have the you know, white suburbanite, white working class appeal. You might get someone trying to come up and, and make that case that they're a better political fit. I mean, the people who are the most ambitious, who I mentioned in the piece, are Andrew Cuomo and Gavin Newsom. I think they did not have great 2020. So I'm not arguing that they are I mean, yeah. well positioned. But I think they want it. Uh, yeah. Maybe, you know, if you're thinking more dark horse, you know, Governor Bashir in Kentucky or Governor Cooper in uh, North Carolina. Sherrod Brown didn't seem to want it that badly this time around, but he's Ohio. He's he's certainly demographically positioned. Gretchen Whitmer in Michigan. Uh, those are people who might you know think about it uh, if there's a concern that a coastal candidate is not going to do the job. Yeah, yeah. Newsom, because uh, I'm 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 broadcasting here from Oakland, so so California politics is something that I I, I by nature have to keep more of my eye on. I'd be curious to see if 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 Newsom would run against. Kamala as well, they're they very are, close as so they yes. are very close and then also I mean who knows he's gonna he might have his handful with a recall effort in the next uh, uh six yes. months so that'll be its own thing let's let's swap over to the Republican side of the fence uh and 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 we will now address the the chungus in the room and that is uh, Donald Trump who has to this point yet to accept the results at least as we record this on on uh December 30th the results of the 
2020 election. Uh, likely by the time that we air this, uh, there will at least be a confirmation in the Senate that Joe Biden did win, as recited possibly by Mike Pence or likely by Mike Pence. Uh, where do you see the, uh, 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 the, 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 the Trump of it all? Like, like when do we know that he, when he's going to run, is it early or late? Well, that I can't answer readily. I mean, uh, he filed for a 2020, uh, campaign committee, literally the day of his inauguration in yeah. 2017 or the day after his inauguration. Um, so he might do something right off the bat and say, here's my papers. Now, if he did that, people might still wonder, does he really mean it? He filed the papers. Was he really going to pull the trigger? So yeah. there might be some of that will he or won't he that, that continues regardless. Uh, if we can pull back for a second, I do think this is not just a horse race exercise that we're talking about. This, this whole discussion matters because it is a window into the future of these two parties. They're both parties in ideolo ideologically in flux. Uh, and... I think Joe Biden and Kamala Harris cast a very large shadow over the Dem the ideological future of the Democratic Party, uh, with Biden's moderate course very firm and Kamala's a little more um, uh, open to interpretation at this point. Uh, and there's the question of the Republican side, are, is this a Trumpist party for the next generation or was this a one-off? Yeah. And they're going to come back to say it's more traditional Reaganite Republicanism. Uh, so Trump casting this long shadow is not just fodder to talk about for entertainment purposes it, it every other wannabe republican nominee has to decide am i in a trumpist party and therefore i need to behave as such or is it open to question the ideological direction so i should carve out a, a path for myself or it's just or it's not sitting stone either way and i want to make it one way or the other i want to i want to force a conversation and drive it in one direction so Trump casts this very long shadow, I think, freezes a lot of people who think it has to be a Trumpist party. Really, it hurts Josh Hawley and Marco Rubio and yeah. Ted Cruz and Rick Scott and, and, and Tom Cotton. Um, although, I mean, they may still run. Uh, where If you're Larry Hogan or Chris Christie or Ben Sass, these are folks who have already made moves to separate themselves from Trump. Yeah. And that's, I'm not, not going to say that's an easy road because there's obviously challenges there too, but they control their destiny a little bit more than those other folks that I mentioned who are just sort of crossing their fingers and hoping Trump doesn't run. All right, let's let's take a look at the Senate then. All, all the names that you just mentioned that would, would likely come out of it because when, when you say a, a Trumpist party, the one thing that seems to have... Uh, uh, totally infected the mainstream of the GOP party as the returns came in is, oh, look, blue collar. We're now the blue collar party. That's the mm -hmm. one way that we can describe Donald Trump without saying the word Donald Trump that is very popular. And 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 look at all these small dollar donations that we can bring in and look at the rallies and the populism for which we can take advantage of. Uh, uh, which among those names you mentioned, Cotton, Cruz, Rubio, Scott, do you think has the best chance going forward? Honestly, I think it's a very weak bunch. Uh, I don't think any of them has a great grip on the working class elements of the Republican Party. You know, Hawley is, I think, making the most noise right now, yeah. uh, uh, pushing the direct payments. But I don't, I don't, I don't really know if that's the secret sauce uh, <laughs> for him. I mean, the thing that has made the Republican Party more of a working class party is their ability to wage culture war. 
It's yeah. not so much their economic proposals. No. Uh, and, and and all those people that I mentioned, I think are perfectly fine waging that that culture war. It's just that being, being a sitting senator is just not a great place to sell yourself as a guy from the heartland, even if you are technically from the heartland. Yeah. Uh, there, there's been no sitting senator who's gone the Republican nomination, let alone become president since Warren Harding in 1920. And it's only, and, and only a couple of instances on the Democratic side, you know, most recently Barack Obama and JFK, two people who were very young and not really seen as creatures of Washington. Uh, yeah. So it, it's, it's a hard place to run from, uh, especially if you're trying to run kind of an anti-Washington, anti-establishment, anti-elitist campaign. You know, Biden, it's like very unusual uh, as somebody who had decades of Washington experience actually becoming president. That doesn't usually happen. Yeah. Uh, uh, and so I certainly can see the Republicans trying to run someone counter to that. You tend to go the opposite way uh, up against an incumbent or, or after a two-termer. So a sitting senator is not a great uh, choice for that. Um if you are uh, a governor, that's potentially a better place. And maybe they go for our celebrity businessman. And I mentioned in the piece, oh, you know? I was going to save it, but let's go there. Let's go there. Cause it's one of my favorites. It, 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 it may or may not be the reason why I immediately emailed you because I wanted to have a conversation about Mike Lindell of my pillow. Somebody that has uh, uh, become a, a major figure, if you are a Newsmax or, or One America <laughs> News Network viewer. Uh, uh, he is a ardent Trump supporter, somebody that has been there for a while. But, but I got to ask you this. Uh, you know, he's a very public recovering crack addict, right? Like, well, that's, well, that's part of the story. That's, that, that's part of what gives him uh, is, his is, narrative. Is America ready? Now, look, we've had recovering alcoholics. We've, we've had recovering uh, uh, drug addicts that, that have, uh, or at least uh, not crack, not publicly crack. Uh, uh, <laughs> is America ready for this? <laughs> look, uh, I, I think your average Republican voter holds their own feel to different standards that they would hold a Democratic feel. If it was a Democratic crack addict, they would be merciless. If it was a Republican crack addict, it's a redemption story. Yeah. Uh, so uh, I don't think that would be the challenge for him. And, you know, uh, you, you might say being a completely unqualified person who's never run for elective office before would be a challenge. But look, Donald Trump got where he is. Yeah. Uh, and, and he's not the first celebrity businessman to uh, at least make waves or business person, if you will. I mean, we've, we've had uh, Herman Cain have a turn as front runner. Yep. We had Ben Carson, who's not a business person, but a doctor, have a turn as front runner. Carly Fiorina didn't get quite as far, but she had her moment in the sun. Uh, and you can go back farther. Uh, Steve Forbes had respectable runs, uh, 96 and 2000. And even uh, Wendell Wilkie, I mean, Wendell Wilkie, yeah. 1940, who was a cor corporate executive, you know, was the outright nominees. Uh, so Republicans have had an openness to this for a long time. Yes. And if it's not, if it's not Trump and they don't want a Washington type person uh, again, if you, if you're if, if you think Pence has the inside track and I still do, who's the best counter to a Pence, not a sitting Senator, <laughs> but someone far removed from Washington. And in the case of Lindell, so someone who can say, I fought for Trump, Harder than you did. Yeah, I was saying stop the steal when you were being mealy mouthed. Yeah, uh, so I, I would not if, if he chooses to do it. I would. I mean, there's more talking running for governor in 2022 in Minnesota than president, but I would not count Lindell out 
if he actually makes the big plunge. Uh, and, and let me let me just make this clear uh, uh, before I get any emails. Uh, we uh, <laughs> Lindell is is very public. I think it's in his story. I think like the name of his autobiography is like from from crack addict to success. Or yeah, something like I mean that. that's like, his whole thing. That like, is that is, that is something because I'm a good redemption story. Yeah, that he is very very open about. And by the way, have you have you heard the details on it? It is a fascinating story. I, I, I've tells. not read the book, so I can't say. I'm yeah. not a Lindell connoisseur. He apparently he had the nicest crack dealer you have ever heard of <laughs> that told all the other crack dealers in his town to not sell him crack, and they all bound together as a little crack selling community to deny him the crack he wanted it was uh uh, uh yeah anyway uh, go ahead and, and and read up on the on the lindell thing let's talk about somebody else that is from outside the sphere of elected power and if you're looking at the trump mold and breaking down exactly how he came to prominence a lot of it was because he was a guy on television who just seemed to have all the answers while all the elected officials did was bicker and dither. And there is one person that is probably better at doing that than even Donald Trump. And that's somebody else you talk about, Tucker Carlson, somebody who yep. has gotten a lot of uh, conversation about possibly running. I is this something that, that you get the sense has traction or is it just because... Trump was the TV guy. If we we're going to look at a TV guy, this is the most likely TV guy. Yeah, I, I, I'm a little, I mean, I, I include him in the story, um, largely because there's been so much buzz around him. That buzz has not come from Tucker himself. Yeah. You know, Tucker has really not made the moves to suggest he's really angling for it. So I don't want to get too far and, and, and make too much of it. Whereas Lindell is doing a lot of political activity in the past month, which makes me think he might actually be thinking along along those lines. Uh, but there is a logic to Tucker in that he has a, uh, he is uh, just barely behind Sean Hannity in audience for Fox News uh, and has developed a very clear, ideological vision, uh, arguably racist vision, uh, that uh, has a market. I mean, so we I, I don't want to normalize Tucker's racism, but let's not be blind. There's a market for it. Uh, so uh, I, I think he had built a pretty loyal following. Now, there's a question whether he has undercut his own following by calling into question uh, Sidney Powell's arguments in behalf of Trump's uh, campaign, the lawyer who's arguing that you know Hugo Chavez from the grave has you know flip votes. Yeah, uh, he called her into question, called her out on TV when she wouldn't come on the show and, and lay out her case. Now he scrambled back and tried to still talk about election fraud as being a real thing, but does did, did he hurt himself with the hardcore Trumpist? That, and that does that make it harder for him to uh, own that lane? Uh, so if he is going to do it. I think he starts from a bit of a tougher position than maybe he started from six months ago. And there's still the big open question. Does he really even want to do this at all? I think for him and somebody like Hannity, uh, which is it's interesting that we keep hearing about him and not Hannity, which almost makes me think there is something to it because why, why wouldn't both get mentioned at the same if we're just trying to do fill in Fox news hosts who would take the plunge. Uh, but for them, it's like, do you want to risk it? Like that's that's a big that's a, that's a big thing to give up if you leave a popular media perch and and make a run and then lose possibly lose in the primaries and next thing you know you're back on yeah. television as 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 a contributor uh uh before before you know it 
Yeah, you can't assume the job will be waiting for you when you come back. No. You know, primetime TV slots don't just get held in a generous way. Uh, so that is a question they'd have to ask themselves. Now they might conclude, hey, if I don't get my, my Fox job back, I can do something else. There's enough ways to have a platform in this diversified media culture to still make a living. Yeah. Now Hannity, I do think I mean, Hannity is the most watched Fox host. Yep. Why doesn't he get talked about more? And I think in the summer when there was a lot more Tucker buzz being built up in the media, Sean made a bit of a um, coy reference in the, in the Tucker to Sean handoff yeah. or Sean to Tucker handoff uh, to suggest he's maybe a little jealous of the, the attention Tucker was getting and maybe he would run himself. And I can't get, I can't get in these people's heads. Maybe, no. maybe, maybe he would run. I, I think he doesn't get talked about as much because Sean's not known for having much of his own vision his own philosophy. Yeah. Uh, he has been known as just someone who is a straight up partisan yeah. uh, who, who will echo whatever it is the leading Republican is echoing. And that doesn't mean he couldn't run or, or couldn't win the nomination, but I think it makes the people in the pundit class like myself less inclined to think uh, he has a available niche to, to cultivate. Yeah. Also, you know, if, if we're going to get into the, the media element of this, you know, this is a possibly generational handoff moment in the world of conservative media. If, if indeed, mm. as as is rumored and suspected because of his you know, terminal cancer, Rush Limbaugh is about to, if, if he's done his final broadcast, then like that that is a crown that has not come open in in decades. That that now those two guys would theoretically step into as being among the lead dogs in that pack. So you have to wonder, even timing wise. Is now the time that you would want to do it, or or would especially if you're Tucker and you have years to wait, you have you have many cycles that you could you could decide to do it. Maybe maybe now's not the time. Who knows? Yeah, you know, from a you know, and I don't want to be crass about you know Russia's uh, disease. Uh, yeah, as much as we might disagree with him, you know, still a human being, and we and you know don't want him to to to, to suffer physically. Um, but from a business standpoint, whenever. The, the top guy abdicates the spot, you know, business people think about, okay, there's an audience to fill here. There's a whole slew of radio talk show hosts and TV hosts. Uh, you know, it's, it's like when Howard Stern left terrestrial radio, yep. there was a scramble who would, who would dominate morning uh, radio and no one really successfully consolidated that yep. audience. So it's not even a given that somebody could. Uh, but if, if, Tucker or Sean is thinking about how do I maximize my audience and, and earn more money? Do I do it by, I mean, I don't think Tucker has a radio show. Sean does. Sean does. Um, yep. Uh, does Sean, this is, this is my moment to expand my reach and get on, get, get more carriage uh, with, with rush gone. Or do I, do I do better by running for president and building my profile that way? And, and say, and, and does Tucker say, maybe I should get into radio uh, because uh, the, the opening is there for me. Or maybe he likes this cushy life as it is and just doesn't need to upend it anyway. I, I can't know their individual calculations. Um, yeah. What, what's more interesting to me is, uh, is there space in the party for someone with a certain pitch or ideology what does it say about the party what about our nation's politics are there there is definitely a, a market for tucker style populism yeah uh and whether it is the whether it's the biggest market in the republican party that i can't say uh but if he did run it would it would test that question is trump's ideology about trump the person the persona or was he selling a product that goes beyond the man 
that a Tucker or a Josh Hawley or somebody else can replicate. Well, if you were in GOP headquarters and you could invent the kind of candidate that you would want in a lab for them, uh, I think that it would be somebody that had Trump-style populism that was one of these final two candidates that I want to talk about, and that is Nikki Haley and Tim Scott, both mm -hmm. given tremendously uh, large platforms at the convention that was held uh, a few months ago. Uh, both would seemingly take advantage of the demographical inroads that the Republicans have made in minority communities, specifically the black community, if Tim Scott was uh, uh, the pick. But also of your Nikki Haley, you actually lost this election by way of suburban women. Nikki Haley seems like a, a ready-made candidate that could talk to them and, and win them back. Maybe one-time Trump voters that then decided that he was not for them. Where do you see the chances of those two specifically? Well, not just that Trump lost the election in the suburbs, but other House Republicans won yeah. in urban, suburban, racially diverse communities, often with non-white candidates. So you have two uh, Cuban-Americans win in South Florida, flipping seats, uh, house seats down there. You have two Asian-American women flipping seats in Southern California uh, into uh robustly Asian-American districts. Uh, those are being more clinical. And, and, I, and I can't I can't know how clinical Republicans are going to be. Sure. I think the, the logical direction to take the party is in one, recognizing that Trumpist populism was not uh, a complete uh, anvil around the Republicans' neck in people of color communities. Trump made some inroads. Yeah. I mean, not, not gangbuster inroads. Let's not oversell it. Yeah. Uh, but he did better than he did four years ago. And it seems like there is a college, non-college divide that to some extent transcends racial lines. Yeah. So there's there, there's culture war cards that Trump played that had resonance in non-college communities, regardless of race. Uh, and so it's, you could argue, well, it doesn't mean you have to do a wholesale uh, makeover of the party. You can still be a culture war waging party and, and, and do well enough there. But you, the, the catch is you can't lose those college-educated white suburbanites at the same time. Yeah, uh, That's the tough dance that Trump was not able to pull off. So you had some folks who are, I think, more moderate to right-leaning, college-educated white suburbanites, that Trump was too much for them. Uh, and there's already some peel away in 2016, going from Mitt Romney 2012 to Hillary Clinton 2016, that Joe Biden helped finish the job with in 2020. So could somebody like a Tim Scott or a Nikki Haley or to go beyond the people of color candidates, a Mike Pence? Yeah. Uh, could could they be better suited? If you're Haley or Tim Scott, you can potentially do better in the suburban communities because you're not trafficking in overt racism. Uh, and that rankles your more college educated white suburban. I, not, not, I'm obviously broad brushing. It sure, sure, not sure. That, yeah, not that yeah. you can't be a racist and have a college education. Uh, yeah. But I think the evidence suggests that there is there, there, there was a triggering effect that, that, that ruffled too many feathers in college educated white suburban communities. Um, so uh, Haley and Scott potentially help you on that front. Pence could in theory say, Hey, I'm the, I'm the Trump without the crazy. Uh, so uh, you you can be more comfortable with me than you were were with him. I and mean, those those are the plays I think those three bring to the table. 
Uh, and Haley is somebody who I think did not have a great 2020 otherwise. She's not done a very good job of defining who she is politically and philosophically. She's been accused of being a chameleon because uh, she sometimes sounds like a Trump lawyer, doesn't sometimes sounds like a Trump critic. Yeah. But she has a, a stronger demographic case to make thanks to the success that these candidates had on the House level. Uh, yeah, you know, I, I, I really do wonder, and I think that Nikki Haley does, she, she needs a thing. She needs an issue, uh, before I think we can really take her seriously. Tim Scott, I thought was somebody that, that did have a good 2020. He was the name on the, on the, on the Republican version of the police reform bill after George Mm -hmm. Floyd. I think that there is an, an element of, uh, a, a new Republican party for which he can embody that doesn't feel quite like the made in the basement of the Brookings Institute, uh, or, or, you know, or a, a right-leaning think tank, sorry, uh, you know, uh, like Mitt Romney was that I think alienated blue collar voters, but uh, I'm, I'm curious. All right. Now, well, but, but just to that point, I, I think Tim Scott, I agree with everything you said about Tim Scott. My question about Scott is, does he even want it? There's no evidence that he's really jockeying for it or little evidence. I should say, I think he's doing one cattle call thing this month, but yeah. could suggest he cares, but he's known as very, being very introverted, very shy. He's not a media spotlight hog. So, so that could work in his favor if he's seen as someone that people are drawn are trying to bring out. You know that not someone who's overly hungry for it. I, uh, yeah. But in in a, in a field where you got a lot of hungry people, I'm not sure he has the fire for it that uh, that other others might have and may just take a pass on altogether. Yeah, but you know, then again, if you are to understand that we're always fighting the last war, and if we have a big fat open GOP primary like we did in 2016 then nobody's going to want to be the guy who Jeb bushes it and tries to high road while the loudest person in the room gets all the attention. So I think it is going to be a big, messy thing. Maybe the strong, silent type does stand out if, if, you, have, if you have the gravitas. But then again, this is all contingent on whether or not Trump runs. Yes. Uh, all right. Uh, a, a Bill Sher, or, or Bill Sher, you are uh, a contributing editor of Political Magazine, contributor to Real Clear Politics, co-host of the DMZ, a bipartisan online podcast on bloggingheads.tv. But what I want to talk to you for a few seconds before we let you go is your history podcast, When America Worked. You've got one episode out now, which I found fascinating, and I highly recommend if anybody who's listening to this that liked Raise the Dead, uh, my history podcast, go listen to When America Worked uh, because – there are going to be new episodes of that long before the next season of Raise the Dead comes out. Uh, but but talk to us for a little bit about uh, what you wanted to do there and what the first episode's about. Well, the, the premise of the podcast is telling the stories about great achievements in American history that are forged through pragmatic means. And yeah. that... That is not a selling point elevator pitch for a lot of people. I know that. It's, it's part of the fun of the podcast is how do I make this interesting? How do I make, how do I make this challenging subject interesting to people? And it means finding good stories and telling them well. Uh, and the, the, the benefit of having this be the premise is these are stories that people generally don't tell because they're not seen as interesting. So I, I don't I don't have the challenge of having to uh, compute others who want to tell you know an assassination story or a scandal story. Yeah. Uh, so the the first debut episode is about Edward Statinius, someone that almost nobody knows, but he was Secretary of State for FDR and Truman, and I argue he deserves the lion's share of the credit for the creation of the United Nations, a credit he did not get in his own time. 
Uh, and the story of how it happened, because he was very, uh, he was a very unlikely Secretary of State. He was not a trained diplomat. He gets into the position in part because of a scandal, because of one of the first gay sex scandals. Yes. Which did, which, which not, did not come to light in its time, but we know about it now. Uh, and the when you hear about the United Nations being created, it tends to be treated like World War II ended and the UN was created magically. Yeah. It was it was an obvious thing that everybody wanted, and so it happened. And yet. There are so many things that Satinius had to do to get it off the ground, thing and things that would not have happened if his predecessor Cordell Hall had not resigned in a peak against FDR, because they had some very significant differences of opinion. Uh, and I think if we went in Cordell Hall's Cordell Hall's direction, the diplomatic challenges would not have been solved, and we might not have might not have a UN at all, and which I would also argue would be bad. Some people might yeah. think, "Who cares? The UN doesn't do anything." I make the argument in the podcast that is actually a hugely important uh, institution, curtailing the deaths from war and spreading uh, the end of decoloniz- the end of colonization. I think, yeah, you you make a very very credible case to say, and I would I would count myself among the the United Nations critics uh, who, who look at it as more of a, a a relic of the past that now only serves so foreign diplomats can avoid getting parking tickets in New York uh, <laughs> that that you know that you have to look at the facts that uh, in terms of it being just a release valve if you only understand it to be just a a hole in the the, 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 the top of the cellophane that that lets out just that little bit of steam that stops things from exploding that it is incredibly valuable and the construction of that that has allowed it to stay if it is this stable but inert, thing that does let off just enough steam to keep the world from going to war, then that is a tremendous achievement. And I think uh, uh, you did a great job explaining it. So when America worked is available now on all podcasting platforms uh, and it is done by uh, uh, the great Bill share. Thank you uh, for coming on and hopefully this won't be the last time. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Great talking to you. And with that, we head on into the weekend. I want to thank everybody. For joining us, a reminder, you can always email the show, theyoungamerican at gmail.com. You can tweet us at the show's account, px3tweets, letter P, letter X, number three, tweets. You can find my live streams, which are four days a week at px3live.com. You can get on our newsletter, px3newsletter.com, and you can find this podcast at px3podcast.com. If you would like to support us on Patreon, it is takepoliticsseriously.com. Reminder, the $3 level gets you two bonus episodes each and every week. If you want to make a one-time donation, you can hit me up on PayPal, paypal.me slash payjury. Maybe you've got a little bit of Venmo cash sitting around. You want to hit me with a dollar. Justin-Young-20 is how you can do that. No one's hit me with $1 on Venmo yet. I'd be thrilled if I could get $1 on Venmo. And you can send a physical check or anything else to my P.O. Box. P.O. Box 10853, Oakland, California, 94610. Uh, But of course, if you want to get your name read at the end of the show, the way you do it is by going to TakePoliticsSeriously.com on Patreon, joining at the Titanic, 
$10 tier, like, I love you, D uh, I love you, TNT, Dr. G, The Jen, Kathy Mac, Headphones, Neil, Onward to Georgia, Captain Bunzo, Jay Sulu, Dallas Danger Taylor, Middle Age Mike, but what happened to text? Get a bucket and a mop. Cujo, Idris, Jacob Wilson, Berkeley, Stephen, Justin Egan, .com, Junkie, Diana, Sunny Smiles, Tempest Fugit, Jason from Magnolia, Delta Credit Card Processing, D Laser, Hashtagis, Alec, Government Unfiltered, Andres, Archie, Darren, Olin and Angela, DL, Kyle, Chad, Nomadic Terran, Miranda, Jenny, Robert, Casey, Paul, the most conscientious nonpartisan listeners, Brad, Richard, just another pilot, D Really, Frozen Summers, J Pink, and Andrew. You want to join their ranks? Yeah, head on over to takepoliticsseriously.com. Inauguration week coming up next week. Uh, we are also going to have an interview. Next week with our old friend Musa Algarbi. He is joining us yet again. Always a pleasure to talk to him. And hopefully we get to hear his infectious laugh one more time. But until then, this is your old pal Justin Robert Young saying, some shows talk about politics, others talk about politics, and still more talk about politics. But this is the only program that dares to talk about how... Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this broker. <laughs> Dog and Pony Show Audio.